Good morning. We are in Matthew chapter 17. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we come to it now, we would come with an attitude of worship. I ask that we would come with an attitude like the Thessalonians had, not hearing the word of man, but hearing your word. I ask that you would set a guard over my mind and my heart and my mouth, that I may not speak anything displeasing to you, but only that which gives grace and builds your people. Feed us and nurture us. Correct us where we need corrected. Encourage us where we need encouragement. For your glory, Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, Matthew writes, And six days later, Jesus brought them, brought with him, uh, Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So to to give you a little bit of a setting here, Jesus back in in chapter 16, had taken his men to Caesarea Philippi that's in the north of Israel. It's just south of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is part of a a range that extends about 150 miles north. From there, Mount Hermon is the highest point in in Israel. It's about 9,000 feet, I believe. Uh, If you go to Israel today, you can go snow skiing, and that's where they do it is is Mount Hermon. Um, There were three times in the Gospels that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and not the other disciples. When he raised the official's daughter from the dead, he left the other disciples outside and he took Peter, James, and John with him. When he prayed in the garden before his arrest, Mark 14 says that he took all of them to the garden, but then he took Peter, James, and John a little further with him and he prayed. And then here at his transfiguration, Um, these men were going to be key eyewitnesses to these events. Peter would become the the leader of the early church, not a pope, not better, not higher than the others, but more of a first among equals. James was a very outspoken, very important figure in the early church. James was the first uh, of the apostles to be put to death. He was put to death by Herod the Great, or Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, And then John is the apostle who lived the longest. He lived into the 90s, 60 years after these events. He wrote the the Gospel of John and the Epistles and the Book of Revelation. 
And in, in fact, as we have read about Jesus being transfigured, that's what John describes in Revelation chapter 1 when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice, and I turned around, and there was this figure, and he describes him much as he describes him here, much more detail in Revelation 1. But John saw him a second time. Just as it says here, they fell on their faces and were terrified. John happens to fall on his face and is terrified by the vision in Revelation 1. So the Bible says two or three witnesses are necessary to establish something. Well, here's the three. Peter, James, and John. Um, Jesus took them up on a high mountain. The Gospels never named the mountain. I think it was Mount Hermon. They were there. They were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Church tradition says it was Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was in southern Galilee. Uh, It was about 1,000 feet high, which I wouldn't consider a mountain, but it's certainly a very high hill. What's interesting about Mount Tabor is it just kind of sticks out by itself. It's just this cone out on a plane. It's not part of a range anywhere. So you can go up to the top and you can see all around. And it it could have been there. I just think it was probably Mount Hermon. The gospel writers don't name the mountain, though. That's probably because people would have begun treating them as holy sites and making pilgrimages. And that should never be the focus. That's why they don't identify where the garden tomb was. It's why they don't identify where Calvary was. They simply name it. So the first thing that happens as the story unfolds is in verse 2. Jesus is transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them. That means, as we see, okay, so you you hear me say this. The answer is always in the text. What does it mean to be transfigured? It means his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became brilliantly white. His clothes became as white as light. The word transfigured here is the Greek word metamorphoteo that we get metamorphosis from. It refers to an outer change in appearance that reflects an inner change of nature or essence. Now, Jesus internally did not experience an inner change of essence. What was happening in this is who he was was being unveiled. When Jesus was incarnated, the glory of God was shrouded. It was concealed. He lived his whole life that way. He lived his whole life looking like just a normal person. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says he had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him. He didn't have an appearance that we should desire him. In other words, if you pass Jesus in the street, you wouldn't say, he's weird. There's something different about him. He's glowing. What's that weird halo thing around his head? Jesus didn't have anything like that. He looked like any other person would look. His disciples knew him. They'd been with him for the better part of two years. They knew him well. They knew him like most of us know one another. They, they knew him even better than that. Um, we can get to know one another so well that if, if you saw me, at, if you knew me well and you saw me at a distance, 100 or 200 feet away at night walking, Away from you, you'd know it was me if you know me well. They knew Jesus that way. But the rest of the world didn't. There was nothing about him that stood out. These men knew him well enough to pick him out in the dark, and in fact, Judas Iscariot did that the night of his arrest. But Judas had to identify Jesus because there was nothing about him that stood out. So all of a sudden, then, Jesus doesn't look like he had looked. 
His face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are as white as light. Mark 9 says his clothes were whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. They're supernaturally white. Shining faces and clothes are often a a representation of the holiness of God in Scripture. Moses, when he went up on, on Mount Sinai and then came down to speak to the people, his face glowed. Whenever he went in to speak to God, his face glowed. The first time he came down, it freaked everybody out. They had no idea what was going on. They were terrified. When he had finished speaking with them, Exodus 34 says, Moses put a veil over his face. 2 Corinthians 3 says he put the veil over his face, not so people wouldn't see the shining, but so that they wouldn't see that it faded over time. The Ancient of Days in Daniel 10, it's a prophetic vision of Jesus himself on the throne. Daniel says he had the appearance of lightning. So there's this glow about him. There's this brilliance of light about him. Angels are described as being dressed in white. The saints will one day be dressed in white. Uh, in holiness and in glory. Revelation 3.5, Jesus says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He's speaking about sinners who have been saved and regenerated will, in the eternal state, be like Jesus is here, glorified. During his lifetime, Jesus looked like anyone else. After his suffering, Isaiah fifty two fourteen says, his appearance was marred more than any man. Uh, movies don't get that. The passion came close, but no art reflects that. Michelangelo, the, the Italian sculptor, sculpted a, a huge statue that's called the Pietà. Pietà means pity or suffering, and it's Mary holding the dead Jesus on her lap, and he is beautiful. He was not beautiful. If you've ever seen somebody beaten to a pulp, if you've ever seen a boxer that Mike Tyson has wiped up the floor with, if you've ever seen somebody who's been in a terrible accident, whose eyes are swollen shut and bloody, the nose is broken, shattered, multiply that by 10. And that's what Jesus looked like in his suffering. But here for a moment, It's not plain Jesus that we see. It's not suffering Jesus that we see. It's glorified Jesus that we see. Just for a moment, that they saw. The plain man was not the norm. The marred man was not the norm. The glorified man was the norm. His plainness, looking like you or looking like me as any normal man, was like a shroud. It was like the shroud that he was wrapped in for death. It covered his glory. His suffering covered his glory. It concealed his glory. These men had never seen anything like this. But in this moment, his glory is is unveiled just for a moment, just for a moment. A minute, two minutes, five minutes. We don't know how long, but it wasn't long. They saw more than Jesus, though. There's a representation of the law and the prophets. In verse 3, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus, talking with him. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, God revealed it to them. There's no other way for them to have known. They didn't have any pictures. They didn't have any home movies. There were no drawings made of Moses and Elijah. There's no record of that being done. So God simply revealed it to them. 
Why Moses and Elijah? Well, think about this. Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah is, for the Jews, the prophet of prophets. As Christians, we might think that the greatest prophet was Isaiah. It's the longest prophetic book. It's the first book of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. But for the Jews, it was Elijah. So we have Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, law and prophets. If you look in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you'll see, frequently see the phrase law and prophets used to describe all of the Old Testament scriptures. So what I think we're seeing is, is the law and the prophets there to bear witness of who Jesus is. There is an affirmation of who Jesus is. In Deuteronomy 18, Yahweh promises Moses, I will send another prophet like you to them, and they must listen to him. And whoever doesn't listen to him, I will require it of him. And in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Yahweh promises to send the prophet Elijah to Israel to restore the people and to prepare them for the Messiah. In the passage we'll look at next week, Jesus identifies that man as John the Baptist. It was not Elijah raised from the dead and sent back. It was a man coming in the spirit of Elijah, as Jesus says. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the ministry of these men. And they come to bear witness of that fulfillment. Peter and the others must have been stunned when Jesus was transfigured. And, and before they can begin to come to grips with that, they see Moses and Elijah there, and they recognize them by the grace of God as Moses and Elijah. And now they're just stunned. And they should have been speechless, but typical of Peter, he doesn't stay speechless. So Peter says to Jesus, verse 4, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. Look at this, guys. We have the lawgiver, Moses. We have the prophet, Elijah. We have the Christ, Jesus. We have the three men who are the foundation of our hopes and dreams. And they're equal, aren't they? They each get a booth. And before he's... Before he's done, the father interrupts him. We don't know how long Peter would have gone on, but God interrupts him while he was still speaking. Verse 5, behold, and we got behold twice in this verse. Be, behold is, is kind of a pay attention. It, it, it's, it's like when your kid is not paying attention and you reach out with your finger and you zap him on the ear. Hey, listen, listen up. Behold. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's not a visual event that takes place here, but if God had visually manifested something to him, it would have been a big hand and a finger pointing at Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This one. Moses, Jesus, and Elijah are not equals. Jesus is not another word. We have the law and the prophets and now the gospels. Jesus is the culmination of all of those. Moses and Elijah are not the senior statesmen of Israel. And Jesus is the new guy. They recorded the word of God in writing. Jesus is the word of God in human flesh. 
the living word of God. The father affirmed Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, those exact words. And now he adds this command, listen to him. And the three, when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Which is the appropriate response to God speaking? So just parenthetically, all of those people who claim to have had personal visits to God or they've gone to heaven or they visited with Jesus, they're all lying. Not one of them say, it happened to me and I fell on my face as though dead. And they'll say, well, that's because they weren't used to him. John was used to him 60 years later, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his his feet before dead. It's not a matter of this is too much emotionally for me to comprehend. It's a matter of the glory of God hitting me as a sinful human being. And I simply cannot bear it. It's overwhelming. So Jesus comforts and assures them. He came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. It was a necessary rebuke. They're on the verge of denying Jesus his exclusive nature and his exclusive role. But the rebuke is temporary. It's just a moment of correction. And it's okay. He assures them. They look up, lifting up their eyes. They see no one but Jesus. Only Jesus is there. Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Jesus remains. Now, I want to draw out of this a little bit, and you're going to have to test it to see if the the word of God bears witness to it, but I think it does. I think the picture that we're being given here is that the scriptures are a unified whole. It's it's one scripture. The, uh, the, The Jews divided the Old Testament into three portions, Represented by the the word Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym. It stands for Torah, Nevuim, which stand which is prophets. Torah is law, Nevuim is prophets, and Kedavim is is writings. We would say that the Old Testament is broken up into uh, the law, prophecy, history, poetry, wisdom. We would break it out a little bit more. And when you get to the New Testament, then we would say there's gospels and there's epistle. Uh, Revelation is history. I'm sorry, Revelation is prophecy and Acts is history. So we, we have law, prophets, uh, history, poetry, wisdom, gospel, epistle. And the point is that we don't have six or seven or eight different books of God. We don't say, well, the law says this, but the gospel says this. We have one book. We have a book, one book. And Jesus is the culmination of that. The scriptures were knit together by the the Spirit of God as he moved holy men of God to write. (coughs) Peter and the others, it seems, are viewing all of these, these three men as separate and distinct areas of revelation. I'm going to go read the law. I'm going to go read the prophets. I'm going to go read the gospels. And the point that the Lord is making is it's all my word. Don't be confused by the type of literature or when it was written or who wrote it. It's all the word of God. People today do the very same thing. They, they don't so much say law and prophets and writings and gospels and epistles but there are people who will say they'll look at something in the gospels for instance and say well that's not gospel that's law it's in the gospels and it's all one word 
That doesn't mean that everything in the Bible has direct application today. We're not to sacrifice animals, but that's not because it's Old Testament. It's because it's Old Covenant and it's been fulfilled by Christ. There's reasons that we do that. People today, some people have red-letter Bibles. I have, I have no basic objection against red-letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red, but at the same time, I have a huge basic objection to red-letter Bibles because it tempts people to say those are the words that really matter. The whole Bible is the Word of God. The whole Word of God. Jesus is the hub. He's the center. He's the core. He's the focal point. He's the heart of it. All of Scripture speaks of him. All of Scripture leads to him. All of Scripture derives from him. All of Scripture is designed to bring us to him and to glorify his name. That doesn't mean that, that there's a reference to Jesus in every verse of Scripture. It means that every verse of Scripture is dependent upon him as prophet and priest and king and derives from him as the living word. If you think of scripture as the solar system, Jesus is the sun around which everything revolves. It's his gravity that holds everything together in in its proper relation. So it doesn't mean that we read or believe only the words of Jesus in the Gospels. It means that we, we read and study and memorize and meditate on all of scripture because it all orbits around him. Some of it orbits at a great distance. Some of it orbits very closely, but it's all his word. As we bring this home, modern culture is primarily experiential. experiential. Everything is about the experience. In our time, experience equals truth. If you experience it, it's real. If you experience it, it's true. Well, I, I can tell you, our friend Hector, who we prayed for before, Hector is mentally ill. He hears voices. Those voices condemn him. They tell him he's wanted for terrible crimes, that he's going to get the death penalty, and they're coming to get him. He's experiencing that. When I was in the hospital years ago, recovering from cancer surgery on morphine, I hallucinated. I know how real those things can be, but it's not real. But for him, it is. But it's not real. But our society says experience is real. All of the marketing that we face is directly aimed at experience, at what we can see or taste or touch or smell or hear, all of it. So they even sell cat food this way. The slogan from Meow Mix is, tastes so good even cats ask for it by name. The BMW slogan is designed for driving pleasure. Pleasure, driving. I want to get there safe. McDonald's is I'm loving it. M&M's melt in the mouth, not in the hand. It's, it's all sensory. It's all experiential. And it's designed to get us engaged in that kind of thing. Well, Peter made the mistake of assuming that what he experienced made it true. That's why he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I approve of this. This has my approval. This has my affirmation. I like this. This must be true. 
But that experience was leading him very quickly in a wrong direction. And God the Father steps in and corrects him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's, and that's it. Listen to him, period. Not listen to him because you'll like what he says. Not listen to him because it'll make you feel good. Not listen to him because it'll make you successful. Not listen to him because your dreams will come true. It's because of this desire for experience, personal success, enjoyment, having what we want, that false teachers are able to proliferate in our time. They're able to take advantage of people left and right simply by selling what it is we want to buy. You want to be rich? You want to be healthy? You want all of your dreams to come true? You want successful? You want power? God is your tool. Pray the right way, give the right way, think the right way, whatever it happens to be, and you can have everything that you want. God says we're to worship Jesus because Jesus is the son in whom he is well pleased. And that's it. Now, there's obviously an eternal benefit to listening to and believing in Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. We receive him. We receive his glory. We, we are co-heirs with Christ. We receive eternal life with him. But that's not why we listen. That's not why we worship him. That's the benefit of listening. That's the benefit of worship. But it's not why we do it. We do it because he's worthy. If the Lord chose to condemn every one of us to eternal hell, we still owe his son worship. It's not a trade. It's not that God says, I'll do this good thing for you if you'll worship me. Satan does that. We worship God because he's worthy of worship. Now, I want to give you a, a, a point of, of encouragement. We have this word transfigure metamorphosis of used of Jesus in verse 2. It's used four times in scripture. It's used here in Matthew. It's used in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 9 when he describes the transfiguration. Luke doesn't use this word when he describes the transfiguration. He just says Jesus' appearance changed, but he doesn't use this word. The two other times this word is used, it's used of Christians. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. We live in a world where the world, of course, tells us who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's not like, and there are countless Christians who want to say, well, my God wouldn't do that. But if you haven't had your mind transformed by the scripture, you've got no idea what God wants. You've got no idea what his will is or what pleases him. We must be transformed. We're transformed by coming to his word, by immersing ourselves in scripture so that our thinking is renewed and, and our reasoning is renewed. And then it's used the second time of Christians. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, speaking of believers, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transfigured, metamorphosized, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the primary work of the Holy Spirit is not giving spiritual gifts. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is not helping us pray. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ. When Jesus was transfigured, I think it probably happened in an instant. It simply happened. As quickly as light moves, 
he changed appearance. There's no sense in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke that it was a slow buildup to something. He was simply radiant. That's not how it happens for us. With you and I, it's a process. If you're in Christ, you're being transformed, and you're not done. It will take the rest of your life. It will take the rest of your life. Let me give you two illustrations that kind of help that. You can think of a, of a dimmer switch on a lamp. We hit a regular switch, and the light is simply on. That's Jesus at his transfiguration. God's got a dimmer switch on us, and he is slowly turning it. He's just slowly turning it. And it just seems like it takes forever. And if you look at yourself as today as compared to yesterday, you won't see any difference. If you could look at yourself today and compare yourself to five years ago, there's a big difference. The other illustration is rehab, physical therapy. Nobody who goes through rehab wants to get better. They want to be better. They don't want to get better. They don't want to go through the exercises and all that. They just want to be better. I don't want to recover. Robert doesn't want to recover. He just wants to be better. That's just how we are. And then we say in the middle of all of that, I hate this. I don't want to live the rest of my life this way. You're not. It just seems like it. We have a promise from God the Father. See, God is faithful. And he will finish the work that he has begun in us and he is carrying out right now. You, as a Christian, are in spiritual rehab. And every day, every week, every month, every year, the Lord is bringing you further along from where you were to the image of Christ. But it will take the rest of your life. Even as you come close to the end of your life, you're going to look at yourself and you're going to say, I'm not there yet. I'm not close enough yet. It's not your work to do. You've, you and I have got a cooperative work to do of, of transforming, being renewed, uh, renewing our minds in Scripture and being transformed that way. But that's simply cooperative with what the Spirit of God is doing within us. And we have the promise that in the, in the twinkling of an eye, when we eventually close our eyes in death or when the Lord returns to us, that dimmer switch will be flipped all the way on. What we see in Jesus' transfiguration is not God shining out of the man. It's the glorified man revealing who he actually is as a glorified man. We're being transformed. We are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, from grace to grace, by the Spirit of God. You can rest in that. You can trust in that. You can complain about today. It's okay. Today might just be a terrible day. But it's not going to stay that way. The Lord is faithful. He'll complete his good work. So I want us to do what Jesus or what the Father tells them to do. I want to listen to Jesus. I want to love him and worship him. I want to adore him and believe him and obey him and wait for him to finish his work. Father, we thank you for your love for us. 
We thank you for the Savior. I thank you for this event being recorded in Scripture. I thank you for Peter and his his foolishness. We we not only got to see him speak, hear him speak, we, we get to see your gracious, loving response back that directs us toward Jesus. If all of these biblical figures had been perfect, the Bible would be half its size and we wouldn't know what to do. So thank you for recording the embarrassing things, the difficult things. Please encourage our hearts as we trust you, day by day. Some feel like they're making it through very well. Others feel like it's just never going to end. Only your spirit can give the encouragement that the work is proceeding. You are faithful. You won't stop in the middle, and you won't give it up. You will have your way with us. And we give you thanks for that. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us and ask for your hand to be upon them. Bless them, Lord, and encourage them today. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.